All of this made perfect sense to me during the time the New Testament was being written. But once the New Testament was written, and yeah, once this the is where you lose. Had, yeah, this is where you yeah, lose the, the Mormons. Yeah, once, this is where you lose the Jehovah's Witnesses. <laughs> this is where you lose the, lose the Seventh-day Adventists. This is where you lose a whole bunch of people in this gray area who, um, from various Protestant denominations, say. Ultimately, ultimately, this is where you lose Protestantism. Because mm-hmm. once the New Testament was written, in my mind, once the apostles had gone on to their heavenly reward, this kind of spirit-led development was basically over and done. I mean, it, it, it was done. Hello and welcome to another one in a million episode of On the Journey. Maybe more like one in fifty nine, but still, we are rising up That's to the right. challenge of our rival here on On the Journey. I'm Matt Swaim, along with my colleague Ken Hensley. I was uh, an evangelical Christian indie rocker, bookstore guy. I went to some Bible college. Ken went to Fuller Seminary, became a Baptist pastor. Both of us ended up in the Catholic Church. And if you want to find out more about that. Go watch some more episodes at chnetwork.org or come visit us in the online community, community.chnetwork.org. And that's where you can find out all about what we do at the Coming Home Network. And we've been talking a lot about authority lately. Ken, are you ready to dig into a little bit more church history today? I believe so. All right. And with that, I'll just Something like that. that. That's as as much of an answer as I need. Something uh, like that. Can I recap then? You want me to? I say let's let's catch people up previously on okay. on the journey. Okay, I'll summarize fifty nine episodes in fifteen. No, um, the series that we're on scripture, tradition, and magisterium. We're in the section on magisterium, and we've been talking about Peter and the papacy, uh, the primacy of Peter, the primacy of the Bishop of Rome for a few weeks, and we are continuing in that today. Um, so last week we looked at some of the early historical case that can be made for the Catholic teaching on the papacy. We focused on the evidence outside the New Testament for Peter having founded the church in Rome. It's always described as founded by Peter and Paul, having led the church there and being martyred there under Nero. Um, You and I read the passage from St. Jerome where he tells us that Peter was crucified upside down and that he was buried on Vatican Hill west of the Tiber, where St. Peter's Basilica has stood from the 4th century and still stands, and even before then, where a a memorial to Peter stood. I want to read it again because this is just kind of such a a good passage um, from Jerome. By by Nero, Peter was fastened to a cross and crowned with martyrdom, his head downward toward the earth and his feet raised on high, for he maintained that he was unworthy to be crucified in the same manner as his Lord. He was buried in in Rome in the Vatican, near the Via Triumphalis, and is celebrated by the veneration of the whole world. Um, We also read from Protestant New Testament scholar Oscar Kuhlmann his confirmation of this in his book, Peter, Disciple, Apostle, Martyr. And now quoting Kuhlmann, we do not have even the slightest trace of historical evidence that points to any other place which could be considered the scene of Peter's death. So we looked at that. And we also looked at some of the evidence from the first centuries 
from the first centuries of church history, supporting belief in the primacy of the church in Rome and of the bishops of Rome as the successors seated upon the chair of Peter. You want to say something there? Yeah, I was just going to say, um, we had talked about it a little bit last time around, or might might have even been two episodes ago, that uh, while there's no evidence for any other place that Peter met his martyrdom, there are some uh, disputes over where yeah. the other apostles are. But there is absolutely none, uh, mm-hmm. no debate, no question as to where Peter and Paul uh, met their martyrdom, mm-hmm. and it was Rome. And we even see Paul's trajectory there at the end of the book of Acts. Like, this is where Paul is. I mean, this is Paul's ultimate showdown that Luke doesn't record. Okay, so these are the things we looked at last week. And I concluded the, um, I, I concluded our episode last week, Matt, by sharing something of the struggle that I personally faced as a Protestant looking into these matters. And it went something like this. While I could see, I mean, you know, attempting to be scrupulously honest about what I was looking at, I could see the plausible basis for the Catholic ecclesiology, for the Catholic teaching on the church, on the papacy, especially here. I could see the plausible basis for it in the New Testament and also in the writings of the early centuries of of church history. It, It seemed clear to me that the church's understanding of itself, however, was something that had developed over time. To put it another way, there was no uniform witness in the early centuries of the church to the primacy of the Bishop of Rome. There just wasn't. There were voices speaking the other direction. There were some voices who didn't seem to know anything about it. And so the struggle was this. I, I, I was coming to realize that if I was going to embrace the Catholic teaching, I would have to believe that the Holy Spirit had led the church in this development. I would have to believe that the Lord as the head of his mystical body, seated at the right hand of the Father, was leading his church in those early centuries to a deeper and deeper appreciation and understanding of what Jesus' words to Peter had meant when he said, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and I give you the keys and so forth. And the That's whole what it was nine yards. To. Yeah, so uh, just to back up a little bit to where I was as I was processing this question, I was like you. I, you know, I saw no clear evidence that, you know, from day one you had Peter, yeah. the next guy was Pope, you know, yeah. Linus, the next guy was Cletus, the next guy was Pope Clement, all the, all the way down the line. Um, I saw no clear evidence for that, and I thought that is a real problem for the Catholic claim. What I didn't realize is that Catholics don't think that's a real problem for the Catholic claim because they think about their themselves as the church differently than I thought of the New Testament church. Yes. They saw yes. themselves as developing um, all kinds of things, the papacy, the canon of the New Testament, the doctrine of the Trinity, uh, you know, a whole bunch of things down the line. Yeah. Yeah. This, wasn't, yeah. this wasn't a problem for Catholic teaching. It was a problem that I thought is just yeah. for Catholic teaching because I didn't understand the way that the Catholic church thinks of itself. Yeah, you were coming from a different worldview as a Protestant, essentially, with a different foundation, all that. And, and so was I. And so was John Henry Newman. Okay, uh, Of course, Newman, the famous 19th century convert from Anglicanism, now the sainted uh, St. John Henry Newman, he experienced exactly the same kind of struggle looking at the early history, Matt. On the one hand, he could see that the church of the second century, the third, the fourth, the fifth, he could see that it that it somehow it was not essentially Protestant in its nature. 
He wrote in his very famous essay on the development of Christian doctrine, these words, he said, history is not a creed or a catechism. Okay, it's not laid out pedantically, you know, point A, B, C, D, E, F, G. History is not a creed. It's not a catechism. It gives lessons rather than rules. Still, no one can mistake its general teaching in this matter, whether he accept it or stumble at it. Bold outlines, broad masses of color rise out of the records of the past. They may be dim, they may be incomplete, but they are definite. And this one thing at least is certain. The Christianity of history is not Protestantism. If ever there were a safe truth, it is this. Newman's looking at the early church, the early centuries. He's reading it carefully. He can see that the early church isn't Protestant. At the same time, he was confronted by the fact that he could see that the ecclesiology of the church was something that was developing over time, and as you mentioned, as well as other doctrines, that there was a development going on. And therefore, Newman was asking himself the same basic question that I was asking and that you were asking. That is, were these developments departures from the simple teaching of the New Testament, or did they represent, in some way, the faithful, organic development of truths that are present in the New Testament, but in seed form. Which was it? Okay, when you look at the development, does it mean the church is leaving the truth and floating off, you know, and deforming itself into this ugly thing that eventually will be called Catholicism? Or is this an organic development of what's in there? You know, he famously used the analogy of the acorn that grows into an oak tree. You show a kid an acorn and you show a kid, well, you show a kid a an oak tree, and you say, these are the same thing, and they're going to say, no way, they don't look anything close. He also used the analogy of the infinite that grows into um, an adult. You know, doesn't look anything alike. I mean, I show my grandkids pictures of myself when I was an infinite, and they're like, no way, Grandpa, that's not you. But it's the same person. So he used these analogies, the acorn growing into the oak, the infant that grows into the adult, And he asked that question, could it be that the Catholic doctrine of the papacy, and this is what I was asking, that we see developing and that we see gaining increasing acceptance over the early centuries of Christian history, could it be that this is nothing more than the full-grown version of what we actually do see in the New Testament in seed form, in acorn form, in infant form? Had the Holy Spirit led the church in these developments? That's the question. Well, it is a, it's a great question, and um, I didn't first hear about or understand this idea in Newman. Um, I actually first heard about and understood it in Chesterton when Chesterton talks about how when a puppy hmm. grows into a dog, it becomes more doggy, you know, and not <laughs> less doggy. Uh, it says it doesn't uh, gradually transform into a cat. As it develops, it grows more into what it was kind right. of always intended to be in its most mature form. But uh, I I kind of want to go back yeah. into my into my um worldview at this time and and a little bit into yours uh i we would have said about all the congregations that i was ever part of um I, we didn't care much about the denominational affiliations in in my background mm-hmm. i know you probably cared more because you were ordained by a denomination but we would have said that uh when the nazarenes met at the district assembly we were praying for the holy spirit to lead us into all truth as we voted on everything right we were praying mm-hmm. that sincerely mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. We would come to the conclusion, whether at the denominational level or more likely in my background, at the individual church level, that as we prayed for the Holy Spirit to lead us, 
we would we would feel that the Holy Spirit was driving us in a certain direction, and we would say that that was we wouldn't use the word development, but we would have said, you know, down this road, this is the road that the mm-hmm. Holy Spirit is is leading us to go down, and that kind of goes back into the whole, you know, what would Jesus do, operative, mm-hmm. you know, kind of mo that goes into so many denominations, and you know, the joke is always. You know, when people ask, what would Jesus do? They're really asking, what would I do if I were Jesus? <laughs> but at the same time, we we really do see a lot of denominations and a lot of individual churches, even mega churches, talking about how we really believe this is the direction the Holy Spirit is leading us. Why would that apply yeah. to us now, but it couldn't apply back then? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, well, look, my background was different than that, so this is good because I you're a foil to me in your experience. In so many ways, my, Ken, I really am. Yeah, mine really was different, and so I I kind of want to walk through that to make it reasonable and rational to those who are listening, okay? Um, because as a Protestant, I definitely understood, and I had no issue with development within the apostolic period. You know, when the apostles were still alive, I had no issue with that. For instance, although Jesus had said absolutely nothing to the apostles, at least that we know of, about the institution of the diaconate, I had no problem when the apostles made the decision in Acts chapter 6 to ordain deacons as the need arose. In fact, I would have said that the Holy Spirit was leading them in this development. It is a development. And that what was happening in Acts 6 was the unfolding of God's design for the church, although it happened in a very practical way. That is a practical response to a practical need. We read about it. Now, in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, the Hellenists murmured against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the body of the disciples, and they said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, pick out from among you seven good men, uh, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom you may appoint to this duty, and we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. So the people select seven, and they set them before the apostles. And uh, th- okay, this pleased the multitude. They set them before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands upon them. Okay, here's a real, honest development of the hierarchy of the church, a development of ecclesiology within the New Testament. And I would have responded, no problem. Okay, exactly the same thing when the decision came to ordain elders in the churches. Again, we have no record of Jesus ever saying to the apostles, hey, listen, someday I want you to ordain presbyteros, you know, elders, or ordain episkopos, bishops, to rule the churches that you establish when you move on to evangelize um, as missionaries and bring the, bring the gospel elsewhere. As with the institution of the diaconate, Matt, it was a practical need. It was a very practical need that gave rise to this development. Christianity was spreading from Jerusalem throughout Palestine up into what is now Lebanon, but then Syria and Asia Minor over to Greece and eventually to Rome and in other directions. The need was arising for men to take the place of the apostles, leading the churches that they had founded. And so we find Paul, for instance, responding to that very practical need ordaining men through the laying on of hands as they did with the deacons, and later commanding Timothy and Titus to do the same. This is why I left you in Crete, Paul writes to Titus, that you might amend what was defective and appoint elders in every town as I directed you, Titus chapter 1, verse 5. So in the real world, that is in time, the apostles were simply taking practical steps to deal with a practical problem. And yet, 
I would have said, I definitely would have said the Holy Spirit was leading the apostles in this development of the church's structure and hierarchy. I would have said this was a part of God's design for the church that is being unfolded in time as the apostles respond by the Spirit to these very practical concerns. In, in this way, Christ was building his church, I would have said. Indeed. And, and, uh, and even in regard to the biggest and earliest controversy about which Jesus yeah. says nothing, which is the, the controversy of whether the Gentiles need to be circumcised. I mean, we never see any record in the Gospels of Jesus pulling right. Peter aside and saying, listen, I'm going to send you out to the Gentiles. But just so you know, yeah. they're going to have a very serious question about yeah, yeah. the flesh. Yeah. And here's yeah. how you address it. No, yeah. it, it, he doesn't. It's a, But it is a natural implication of what the apostles invested with the authority of Jesus uh, and looking at what Jesus mm-hmm. has asked them to do, say, okay, um, this is what Christ told us. This is how we understand how to apply that in this particular situation. Yeah. And we have the authority yeah. to do it. Yeah, Acts 15 is another, I guess you could call it another very practical, although it was highly theological, situation to which the apostles and elders respond. And remember the letter they sent out, the decree? It begins with, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. They believed the Spirit was leading them. This, Their decision, I'll put it that way, was Christ's decision in this matter. And, and, and my, my point here with these illustrations, Matt, and the one you brought up of Acts 15, is all of this made perfect sense to me during the time the New Testament was being written. But once the New Testament was written, and yeah, once this the is where you lose. Had, yeah, this is where you yeah, lose the, the Mormons. Yeah, once, this is where you lose the Jehovah's Witnesses. <laughs> this is where you lose the, lose the Seventh-day Adventists. This is where you lose a whole bunch of people in this gray area who, um, from various Protestant and ultimately, say. Ultimately, ultimately, this is where you lose Protestantism. Because mm-hmm. once the New Testament was written, in my mind, once the apostles had gone on to their heavenly reward, this kind of spirit-led development was basically over and done. I mean, it, it, it was done. After that, any decision made by the church's leadership would be a, I'll call it a mere human tradition or a mere human decision, like the decision to have ushers, you know, the decision to have ushers use baskets to pass around or a basket on the end of a pole, which I'd never seen before I became Catholic, or to have greeters standing at the door and all that. And by the way, this is how I would have interpreted the things you were saying when your church got together. Yes, you're praying for the Holy Spirit to lead you, but at least I never would have believed, though, that the leading of the Spirit or that the decisions we came to were now literally concretely from God and therefore were binding and needed to be held or anything like that. I would have viewed them as merely human decisions. See, but that's because I, you weren't part of the Church of the Nazarene during an era yeah, where in the living yeah. memory of a lot of my fellow congregation uh, members, uh, women had just very yeah. recently been allowed to wear makeup and jewelry and pants. So... No, I was of the church of the rational lawyer, John Calvin. And, there you, you have know, it. You don't, <laughs> yeah. Okay. So now we go to the question. We move forward a bit then. Okay. So what would I have made? And the answer kind of is apparent, but still want to fill it out. What would I have made of the fact that the church's hierarchy, in fact, continued to develop in the post-apostolic period? Okay. We read the letters of St. Ignatius, the Bishop of Antioch his seven letters, and we get you get the strong impression that by around 110 AD when he's writing, what we refer to now as the monarchical episcopacy, that is the rule of one bishop from 
from the Greek episkopos, bishop, the monarchical episcopacy had become the norm at that time, at least in Asia Minor, where he's writing these letters. And just to give you a, just to give our hearers a taste of the flavor, this is from his letter to the church in Smyrna, um, St. Ignatius writing, see that, you, see that ye follow the bishop, even as Jesus Christ does the Father, and the presbytery, that is the, the body of presbyters, as ye would the apostles, and reverence the deacons as being the institution of God. Notice it's the deacons are the institution of God, Ignatius says. Let no man do anything connected to the church without the bishop. Let that be deemed a proper Eucharist, which is administered either by the bishop or by one to whom he has entrusted it. Wherever the bishop shall appear, there let the multitude also be, even as wherever Jesus Christ is, there is the Catholic Church. And this is the flavor in all of his letters. Yeah, and as we mentioned in a previous episode, Ignatius of Antioch would have been a baby when Jesus ascended into heaven. Yes, this is very early. It's extremely early. In fact, he was a disciple of John, so he learned from John. Okay, now moving forward from Ignatius to more, more recent activity, in his book, Magisterium, Teaching Authority in the Catholic Church, Father Francis Sullivan, he discusses the rise of, again, what we refer to as the monarchical episcopacy now, in the second century. He's discussing this. He mentions St. Ignatius, where we find, and I'm quoting from Father Sullivan, where we find the threefold hierarchy of one bishop, a college of presbyters, and a number of deacons already established in Syria and parts of Asia Minor, again, by the time of Ignatius, and he's writing in 110 AD, and it's already established. And then Sullivan writes, he adds this, quote, by the third quarter of the second century, every church that we have information about with the exception of Alexandria, had a single bishop. In other words, the hierarchy of the church, referred to by, by Ignatius as the Catholic Church, the hierarchy, Matt, continued to develop in the early post-apostolic period. This is simply an historical fact. And so here I am in my Baptist you know, church office, sitting in my chair, thinking about these things. As a Baptist, the tendency for me would have been to respond to this development with a, so what? You know, so what? There's nothing in the New Testament that teaches this idea of the monarchical episcopacy. This is not in the New Testament. And therefore, you don't have one bishop over every church or over every city in the New Testament. And therefore, this historical development that surely took place it's described by Ignatius and Father Sullivan. This is nothing more than an example of the church almost immediately beginning to drift from the simple truths of the New Testament writings. This is bad. You know, this is an example of the church beginning to degrade itself into what eventually would be Catholicism. And yet, right. Ken, and yet, yeah. you, you said, as a Baptist, I would have thought this. Yeah. As a as a what kind of Baptist though, as a Southern Baptist, as an Independent yeah. Baptist, yeah, as my kind, as a Free Will Baptist, I mean, as a strong Sola Scriptura Baptist. But I, but, I'll but say you that. were you were ordained in, a, in a, a, an American Baptist. I mean, you were ordained yes. an American Baptist. So I mean, even within your own denomination, there was some question of what the New Testament Church really looked like, and there were there was infighting among people who call themselves Baptists and continues to this day. I mean, I I certainly saw it. Yes. In all my Wesleyan travels. There was quite a range even within my denomination, okay? 
but but I'm just saying I was uh, you know I was a very strongly solo scriptura kind of thinker okay and so this is how I normally would have responded but the point that I'm making is that is that at this point things were beginning to change for me as I was studying as I was learning about the Catholic faith as I was listening to Catholic apologists and reading for the first time in my life books of theology and biblical studies and apologetics written by Catholics I was beginning to consider another possibility. What if the Holy Spirit was leading the church in all this? What if this development, you know, uh, that is described by Ignatius and then by Father Solomon, what if this development was Christ continuing to build his church? Now, Father Sullivan obviously believes this, and this, is in, this was interesting to me. He explains why he believes it. This is from the same passage. Listen to what he says. On the basis of the following facts, that this development, that is toward the monarchical episcopacy, that this development took place within so short a time, that it took place within the whole church, that it took place without any resistance on the part of presbyters or people that we know of, that these bishops were accepted as the legitimate successors to the apostles, the conclusion is drawn, he's saying the conclusion that he draws, is that this development must have been guided by the Holy Spirit and must have been part of God's design for the church. It is in this sense that I would claim it is a divine institution. Okay, And then he immediately adds something that I felt to my bones, okay? I do not claim to have provided a strict exegetical or historical proof of this conclusion, exactly what would be required by me as a Protestant. He goes on, I agree that it depends on what one is prepared to believe about the guidance of the church by the Holy Spirit. Yeah. (laughs) That goes back to what I was saying earlier, Ken, about I thought that this was a problem for Catholics and the Catholic claim Mm-hmm. about the origin of the hierarchy and, and the papacy and, and the whole mess of it. Um, the Catholics don't see this as a problem for the Catholic claim because they think of development different, in ways that, way. that we, we think yeah. of it completely differently. And, and with that, that whole question of, you know, I need proof of either I, yeah. I need to see it in Scripture or I need to see somebody explicitly lay it out like a Wikipedia entry, you know, for the early church as it's happening self-edited by all the mm-hmm, Christians mm-hmm. so we get like some sort mm-hmm. of like crowdsourced data. It, what what I found myself believing instead was something very strongly that there was zero evidence for. So I believed, or I was under the impression, that there were, there were these whole groups of independent people who didn't need any hierarchy, who didn't need anything. If so, mm-hmm. where were they? What have they left us? Where, where are their writings? Where are the faith alone people? I mean, where are the documents? And I would have said, back to that, well, there are no documents because this hierarchy you're reading about that you're claiming, suppress them all. Well, if that's the case, why do I have evidence for all these other people that Ignatius was arguing with and Irenaeus was arguing with and all these other, St. Paul is arguing with? Why do we have evidence for all these other opposing movements? Okay, Matt, I've got your point, all right? Good point. In fact, ring the bells, I have to say. Mine was a little bit different. I'm bouncing off this this last quotation from Father Sullivan where he says, I do not claim to have, provi- to have provided a strict exegetical or historical proof 
I agree that it depends on what one is prepared to believe about the guidance of the church by the Holy Spirit. This is exactly what I was feeling at this point with respect to the Catholic doctrine of the papacy, because I saw, on the one hand, again, I saw the plausible support for this in the New Testament, that the idea could be supported. We've got the prominence of Peter in the Gospels that you and I have spent time on, his obvious leadership in the early church in the early chapters of Acts. We've got these words, these extraordinary words of Jesus to Peter, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. He's placing Peter in the role of the chief steward over the household of God, um, the royal steward in the kingdom of God, all of that. So I saw that evidence, plausible support. And then I saw plausible support from the early centuries of Christian history as well, from many things that we looked at, some of them we looked at last week. And while there were voices that went in the other direction, clearly, while there was disagreement in the early church, the church I could see was clearly moving in the direction toward acceptance of the primacy of the Bishop of Rome in those early centuries. So in the end, it all depended, again to quote Sullivan, it all depended on what I was prepared to believe about the guidance of the church by the Holy Spirit. And I really can't emphasize enough what a watershed this was for me in my life, Matt. Um, because if I stuck with the New Testament alone, if I stuck hardcore with Sola Scriptura, I probably would have said, okay, there's plausible support. You know, plausible, right? It's possible that the New Testament is teaching these things. And yeah, there's plausible support in the early church. And yeah, it's definitely moving in the direction in the early centuries of acceptance of the Catholic point of view. But there's no strict exegetical, no strict historical proof for this conclusion. And this is exactly the attitude. You go back and listen to some of the debates between a a Protestant and Catholic apologists on this issue. This is exactly the the attitude that Protestant apologists take in these debates. Yeah, there's plausible support, but you haven't proved it. I mean, that's that's basically the stance that they take. And I understand this. It's understandable given the foundations, given their presuppositions. At the same time, Faith in the Holy Spirit's leading of the church was really beginning to make more and more sense to me. And I, uh, and I want to conclude by listing the reasons for that, okay? First, there were the promises of Jesus. I mean, as a Protestant, again, I essentially believe that the church had almost immediately, after the death of the apostles, begun to drift um, in its ecclesiology, but in its doctrine in many ways, its, its crazy magical view of baptism, its magical view of the Eucharist and other issues like that, the priesthood. But the more I thought about the promises of Jesus, just you know, recall them to your mind upon this rock. I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. The more I thought about the promises that he made, I will send the Holy Spirit He will lead you into all the truth. And then after the resurrection saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me now. I'm going to ascend to the right hand of the Father. I'm going to sit down on the throne and pour out the Spirit. You go. You make disciples of all nations. And I will be with you always till the end of the age. The more I I, I was becoming open to the idea that the Holy Spirit would have, um, certainly would have continued to lead his church, to preserve the truth, to define the truth. Otherwise, what did Jesus' promises mean? Um, Hey, you guys, go out and make disciples. I will be with you as you fracture into a million denominations. Or uh, you've got the other option. 
uh, I will be with you until the end of the age. Is that the apostolic age? If so, when does it begin to fall apart? Yeah, I'll be apart? with you for a little while. <laughs> yeah. yeah. When, I'll be with you for when, a little while. When James is put to death by the sword, does that mean yeah. that his line is con- is discontinued? I mean, it just... Yeah, the line... At which yeah. point, this, it, at, at some point, is John the only faithful Christian in the entire church rolling around and he's in prison on Patmos? I mean, think about the kinds of things that you yeah. have to believe if you believe yeah. that. Yeah, and it, it, it makes more sense... I, I believe now, and it was beginning to make more sense to me then to think, no, these promises imply that Jesus will continue to lead his church and to build his church. So there were the promises, and then there was the prayer of Jesus. I'm talking about Matt. I'm talking about uh, John chapter 17 here. Again, as a Protestant, you know, to kind of set up the foil of this, I was so used to the idea that the church had fragmented and splintered into a million versions that it didn't even bother me. I mean, I, you know, if I thought about it hard, maybe it would bother me a little bit, but I was just used to it. Fine, we've got a thousand denominations and sects and independent congregations and churches of all kinds. They don't agree. All are based on the Bible. All of them are insisting that the Bible is clear in what it teaches, and they don't agree. But what can be done? That, that was my attitude. But the more I thought about this prayer of Jesus in Acts 17, Father, in in particular, this part, Father, as you and I are one, bring them, he's praying for the future believers, bring them to complete unity so that the world may know that you have sent me and so that the world may know that you love me and have sent me, all of that. The more I pondered that, the more plausible it seemed to me that Jesus would continue to lead. And the more impossible it seemed that Jesus would essentially have handed these inspired New Testament writings to a bunch of believers and and said, you know, you start meeting in homes and you do just do your best, you know, do your best. Yeah, that seemed implausible. And I remember asking the question many times, what would be the point? And again, seating, being seated at the right hand of the Father, all authority in heaven and on earth having been given to Him, to send the Spirit into the church to lead the apostles into all the truth so that we could spend the next 2,000 years, uh, each one of us, scratching our heads and trying to figure out what the truths of the, of the apostolic faith were and if, are. If the promise that God made to David and his descendants was not broken by God on his end, even though it was broken mm-hmm. by David's descendants, how could it be that if, if as we've said a thousand times in, in this program, if the fulfillment is greater than the foreshadowing, in this case, infinitely so, then how is it gone in a generation? Yeah, you have this wonderful promise of a new covenant in which the truth will be written on the heart and in which the, you know, which is the covenant of the Holy Spirit, and yet it's it's only sustained for a couple of years, and, and then it's gone. Okay, so there was the promises of Jesus, and you're dead on there. There was the prayer of Jesus, and then there was this reality, Matt, the reality that on other issues, I already believed that the Holy Spirit had led the church over time into the truth and to understand the truth in a way that was binding and authoritative. So why not on this issue? Why not on some others? Um, I had mentioned earlier John Henry Newman and how he struggled with how to understand the reality of doctrinal development in the early centuries of Christian history. Well, in the section of his essay on the development of Christian doctrine, in the section that he devotes to the papacy, he makes this exact point that I'm making here. 
uh, quoting John Henry Newman, it is less a difficulty that the papal supremacy was not formally acknowledged in the second century than that there was no formal acknowledgement on the part of the church of the doctrine of the Holy Trinity till the fourth. No doctrine is defined until it is violated. First of all, that's brilliance from Newman and something that was completely invisible to me. I, to back it up, and you know, this is a, a question that yeah. I, I never even thought to really ask with much intelligence until I got into college, I'd say, probably, uh, and just really was faced with some of the stuff. This, what do I mean the church was led over time to understand the truth of the, with the New Testament? Who, who is this church that I mean? I didn't even mm-hmm, think to ask mm-hmm. that question. But more than that, this point that John Henry Newman makes about we got better evidence for papal supremacy or at least a monarchical episcopacy. We have evidence for that earlier than we have evidence for the canon of the New Testament that we have today. Yeah. yeah. So did the, is, is the Holy Spirit taking a few decades off, maybe a century or two off, coming back on the scene to give mm-hmm. us the canon of the New Testament and then disappearing for another thousand years? Yeah, talk about a thousand years. Let me give you an illustration that is very interesting because it comes from a Protestant. Um, I received an email just the other day from this Protestant pastor, a, a Reformed Baptist, Calvinistic Baptist pastor that I have been in communication with. Um, we were talking about the doctrine of justification, and and I challenged him on the fact that the Reformation conception of the nature of justification as the legal imputation, the legal crediting of Christ's righteousness to the account of the one who believes, that this was something that was never held in the first 1,500 years of church history. In fact, according to Alistair McGrath in his book, Eustitia Dei, The History of the Christian Doctrine of Justification, according to him, this Protestant Oxford professor, it was never even contemplated until the time of Luther and Melanchthon. Okay, I was challenging him with this. And he responded, interestingly, that he did, that this didn't really bother him, that the doctrine of justification, he, this is the way he put it, he said, it was not clarified until the 16th century, okay? And this didn't bother him. And the reason was, he says, well, the church had been simply focused on other things during the preceding uh, centuries. Besides salvation, <laughs> right? Yeah. The, century, the church yeah. is like, we should probably get around to figuring out how we are saved. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a that's a funny little side point there. But the thing that was just striking me is that he was all right with the idea that, yeah, a central doctrine of the faith, justification, was never clarified properly until the 16th century. And I had to agree with him as a Catholic. Now it does make sense to think, not that it wasn't clarified until the 16th century, but the, but the principle. It does make sense to think. That doctrine is something the church might clarify over time as it was challenged by events, as it faced concrete uh, decisions, um, you know, like with the diaconate, like the, the ordination of elders, like Acts 15 and the Council of Jerusalem, when confronted by false teachers. And this is, as you mentioned, precisely how it happened with the canon of Scripture. The church existed for a few centuries without taking formal steps to define the canon of scripture. But over time, it became necessary 
Um, and it was because of heresies. There were the Marcionites who were taking a pair of scissors to the New Testament and cutting it up and saying, you know, this is too Jewish. We don't want this. We don't want that. I think Marcion ended up with a New Testament that was comprised mainly of Luke and a little bit of Paul. That, that was about it. Okay. There were the Gnostics at the time who were attacking the meaning of Scripture by giving it their wild New Age interpretations. And then there were the Montanists, you know, these, uh, these wild-eyed charismatics of the time who were attacking the extent of the New Testament because they claimed to be receiving new revelation, which I guess, you know, at least in theory, could have been added to the New Testament. And so the issue of the canon increasingly was an issue that had to be settled and near the end of the fourth century, basing itself on Athanasius's list, which is also mid-fourth century, the church met in synods at Rome, Hippo, and Carthage, and it took steps to do just that, to formally define. In fact, another, this, this is so um, kind of ironical, but from another Protestant apologist in his book, Answers to Catholic Claims, the Protestant apologist James White describes how the Holy Spirit led the church, how the Holy Spirit led the church at that time to define the canon. This is what he says. In the early history of the church, there were events and people that gave impetus and rise to the formalization of the canon list. These things could be viewed as being used by God to prompt his people, the church, to give serious consideration to providing to all concerned a listing of the books which the church, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, received as authoritative. Now, you know, uh, I, let me go on record saying I agree one hundred thousand percent with James White. Yeah, I'll go on record as well. I put up my hand. You know, yes, yeah. But isn't this ironic? Okay, that James White, a Reformed Baptist, and my other friend in his email, a Reformed Baptist. Here, James White is basically coming right out and saying the Holy Spirit was leading the church to formalize the canon. And my other friend was saying, well, the Holy Spirit was leading the church in the 16th century to finally clarify the correct doctrine of justification. It's just that neither but, of these guys means the Catholic Church. That's part of it. No. No, it was just generally leading the people of God in some way, but the church invisible. not. Right. Yeah, de definitely not the bishops of the church at the time, and definitely not the bishop of Rome. Definitely not. It was in some other way, okay? So let me tie this together. When I thought about the promises of Jesus, Matt, when I thought about the prayer of Jesus, and then when I thought about the fact that I already believed as a Protestant that the Holy Spirit, in the face of the Marcionites, the Gnostics, the Montanists, had led the church to define the canon through its ordained leadership, I already believed that the Holy Spirit, in the face of the Arians, had led the church at the councils of Nicaea and Constantinople to correctly understand Jesus, the hypostatic union of the human and divine in our Lord. I already believed that the Holy Spirit had led the church to understand at the Council of Constantinople in 371 the full personhood and deity of the Holy Spirit, and then on to the Trinity. I already believed these things. And so the question was just sort of hanging there. If I already believed that the Holy Spirit in the second, third, fourth centuries, fifth centuries with Chalcedon, 451 AD, the Trinity. If I already believed that the Holy Spirit was leading the church, and the church wasn't just a, some huge congregation of people voting, it was through their bishops, and the monarchical bishopric was there, 
and the authority of the Bishop of Rome. If I already believe these things, why wouldn't I believe that the Holy Spirit was leading the same church in those centuries to a correct understanding of itself, its doctrine of baptism, its doctrine of the real presence of Christ, its doctrine of ecclesiology? All of those things. On all those things, the problem doesn't happen when you say, well, the church, you know, pronounced the doctrine of the Trinity. That's not mm-hmm. an issue. It's an issue when you start to say that you believe that the consensus of bishops in unity and continuity with the apostolic deposit of faith said these things. You know, because that's what we mean by yeah. when we say mm-hmm. that the church said these things. And, and it comes mm-hmm. back to another point that I made a couple times here before, but I think it's so important to realize um, and to ponder. Let's say that the canon of the New Testament had not been established. It's 2021, and uh, like your friend with justification, you know, 21 centuries in. Yeah, 21 centuries into the church, there's a need to clarify this. But we've already gone through the justification controversy and all the Reformation splits. Mm -hmm. Which church, which denomination could put forth their list and everyone would say, that's it, Presbyterians got it. We're going to go with the Presbyterian list. Like, which which body would be able to... How do you even get a canon of the New Testament unless you have this thing in place? I mean, how do you get it? Who decides? Yeah, unless to... you have a church, like with the capital C. You don't even get the New Testament. And the thing that even strengthens what you're saying, or that, that yeah, that strengthens what you're saying, is that when it came to the canon... You've got something where we're not told in the New Testament at all. You know, I mean, at least on the doctrine of justification or the Trinity or the the Holy Spirit, you could look to many, many passages in the New Testament to to get a grip on what you believe the apostles were teaching. But you can't even look to one passage in the New Testament that says, include Hebrews, that's Scripture, uh, include First Peter, include Second Peter. Make sure you don't include Barnabas. You, you know, can't. There's you certainly can't look Testament. to the words of our Lord because it's not like yeah. our Lord says, "All right, guys, this is the Great Commission. Uh, I'm going to ascend, but I'm going to come back because there's one guy I want to get a hold of. His name's Paul, and you don't know him yet, but he's got a lot to say that you're going to have to listen to. No, yeah. there's nothing like that. Nothing like that in the New Testament. Uh, on the issue of the canon, I mean, it seems impossible to decide now. The, the hypothetical you've given: what if churches were deciding now from scratch? But even deciding then, even deciding in the, the the fourth century, still their decision was based on things like this. Which books are believed to have come from the time of the apostles and to have been written by apostles? What do the oldest and most ancient and formidable churches say about these things? Which books breathe the breath of the Holy Spirit? Which books which are books we using teach? in the liturgy? Yeah, which books are we using? Yeah. Okay. Crazy. Well, anyway, we need to. Uh, uh, this is probably the longest episode we've ever done. So we shall cut it off here and we will continue next week. And we are going to be wrapping up this series, Matt, um, either next week or over the next two weeks, depending and, on how much stuff. And there's still a lot of stuff we haven't answered and, and still a lot of stuff that yes. we won't have answered in every single possible detail by the time we get to the end of this. But hopefully, again, the purpose of this whole on the journey thing is not for us to set out a definitive argument for every aspect of every question. It's just to say, this is what we grappled with. And these are some of the reasons that is, we, we ended up where we are. So, uh, if you're so wanting to continue so that conversation, 
Are you saying you're not going to provide an exegetical historical proof? Well, I don't even know what exegesis is. Everybody I read is eisegetes, okay. pretending to be exegetes. Okay. So. Okay, go ahead. But with that, come visit us, chnetwork.org. Again, chnetwork.org, especially in our community at community.chnetwork.org. I'm Matt Swaim. Ken Hensley, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time. Good day, sir.